Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. On today's podcast, we've got physiotherapist Paul Schofield back into the studio to discuss some of the topics surrounding calf strains and running. Thanks, Paul, for coming in to chat with us today. Thanks for having me. So, mate, let's um, dive into the topic of calf strains and why are they common with running? So, as we spoke about in the last episode, uh, there's a really high amount of calf muscle load at slower running speeds. So, um, if we think about going for a, a you know, 3K run, we'll, we'll typically run at anywhere from, say, 10 to 14 kilometres an hour. And, and the peak amount of load going through your calf occurs at about 18 Ks an hour, which we, we said last time. So you, you're pretty close in that in that wheelhouse to the highest amount of load that you're going to get in the calf muscle. And that just happens step by step by step repeatedly for 15, 20 minutes up to three or four hours, depending on, on obviously the distance that you're running. So the, the overall load, the accumulative load that occurs through that calf complex is, is incredibly high. Yeah. So it's a, it's a pivotal muscle to, uh, to running. Absolutely. Running. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So something we didn't talk much about in, in the last episode, but, but some of the physics, which I think are really interesting is that once we're actually running and we've got that forward momentum, the predominant force is actually a vertical force, which is just pushing us up off the ground. So, uh, minimizing the resistance against uh, against against the road, so uh, the the calf muscles uh, predominantly produces vertical force. So it's it's actually the calf that's just pushing up 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 to maintain that momentum, rather than during sprinting where you're using a lot more of the the hip muscles to actually propel yourself forward and in a horizontal force. Right. Okay. So is it? It's like just walking down the street and wearing high heels. Uh. I can't say that I, I feel like I'm getting stitched up with this question, so I'm not going to I'm not going to comment. Yeah. Okay, good answer. All right. So, if you acutely strained your calf muscle, how would you recommend that I um, I manage it? So, first and foremost, I think it's important to get a good detailed assessment. Um, like everything, there's a, a lot of injuries that can masquerade as as, as others, and, and calves are no different. So, uh, going to a, a qualified person, whether that's a, a doctor or a physiotherapist, to get that assessed is is crucial. Uh, if it is indeed a, a calf muscle injury, then then basic um, basic management principles apply. So, so first and foremost, avoiding uh, oral anti-inflammatories for the first seventy two hours. The reason that we say that is if you think of a a cut on your forearm that you might get. You, you can watch as the blood pools into that area and starts to coagulate and form a glue, which forms that scar tissue. Uh, we know that anti-inflammatories like Nurofen that you can buy over the counter uh, can actually inhibit the uh, some of those clotting agents coming to the area. So you can actually maintain or, or help maintain the bleeding and minimise the ability for that area to, to really um, scar up. So yep. that's, that's probably something that's lesser known, but maintaining... Um, yeah, that's, excuse me, avoiding anti-inflammatories in that early period is, is really important. Yep. Uh, second to that, uh, with, with muscle injuries, there's going to be a resultant bleed into the area. So uh, depending on whether or not it's gone through the, the fascia or the, the glad wrap that surrounds the muscles depends on whether that blood is allowed to dissipate into other areas of the body. But if it's not, then you you develop a, a buildup of pressure, which sensitizes the nerves and and the surrounding tissue. So, so the removal of that that blood is really, really important. So, so two of the best methods that we have for that are uh, compression and elevation. So, just like a tube of toothpaste, the way you get the toothpaste out is by flushing the blood. Uh, sorry, flushing the toothpaste. Uh, it's the I same. Don't know what you brush your teeth with. <laughs> it's the same thing with uh, same thing with uh, muscle injury in that 
elevation so that we can create a pressure gradient to push the fluid back towards the heart and, and some compression to some compression to further um, enhance that pressure gradient is going to be important. Mm-hmm. Um, ice, some people advocate strongly for ice. Some people are really against it. I probably sit somewhere in the middle. I, I don't think that it plays a really important role in reducing that inflammatory response in, in any sense. But if it's a particularly painful injury, it can be really helpful uh, to minimise your pain and just desensitise the area, which... Uh, especially if you're if you're steering clear of oral medication, which can help with pain, then that can be a really really effective strategy too. So ice is a, a bit of a better pain reliever than a, a swelling manager. Yeah, I, yeah, in, in my opinion, yes. Okay. And um, while we're talking about the bleeding side of things with the calf, is there varying degrees of um, severity of a, a calf strain? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like all muscle injuries, they occur on a continuum. So. Um, the the degree or the severity of the tear can be anywhere from very minor, uh, like a little nick, I suppose, in the calf, to to a complete rupture where the the, the calf muscle pulls pulls away from the bone, and anywhere in between. Um, moreover, the, the injury can occur in the actual muscle belly itself, so the contractile component of the muscle belly, uh, in the the little nick in the glad wrap that goes around the fascia, so where the fascia joins the muscle. Or you can um, even have tears in the tendon, which which typically are uh, a little bit slower to, to regenerate. Okay, and do you do you grade them um, at all? Yeah, so the, there's, um, I guess, the old school grading of, of grade one, two, three still still exists, and there's a number of different muscle uh, grading systems uh, out there, and there are some even specific to to the calf itself. Uh, I typically would go to. It's called the British Athletic Muscle Injury Classification System, which really gives a report on the degree of um, injury, so that the amount of, of tear that has occurred in the injury and then the structural location, so whether that's myofascial or muscle belly or the tendon. And if I was at, at home, um, is there any way for me to kind of ascertain that level of injury or I really need to go and see someone about it? Yeah, um, it's it's a really difficult one. E- even for experienced clinicians, it can be can be challenging to to be really accurate with that diagnosis. In that, uh, some of the more painful injuries that we'll get, uh, for example, you you might have a grade two A, which would be a a moderate grade tear to the where the fascia joins the muscle. They can be really quite painful, but you maintain a really high level of function with those. So because the the contractile component of the calf is still intact, you can still largely perform what you need to do. So yeah. If you're playing in a, a grand final in a couple of days, you'd still be a potential to get up and play that grand final with with that kind of an injury. In comparison, you might have a grade two C, which would be a similar sized injury in the tendon, and uh, your pain might be relatively low because the innervation of the tendons is is not as much as, as some of the other surrounding tissue, but uh, it can have really large functional impl- implications. So. Um, again, your, your function, your pain can be really important in um, in determining the severity of the injury, yep. but uh, it's not necessarily reflective of, of the severity. Okay. So I've, I've come in and seen you and, and I've acutely strained my calf and you've recommended not taking anti-inflammatories using elevation and compression. Um, the ice is a bit in or there, depending on my level of pain. Is there any other things that you'd be recommending I do, in, I guess, in that first um, few days or is there an important time frame that you'd be really focusing on? Yeah, so in, in, the, first, in the first week really post-injury, the primary goal, especially in the more severe injuries, is, as we spoke about, just removing some of that excess fluid in the area. 
Uh, but also we want to promote as best as, as possible uh, return of, of function in that muscle. So we know that complete immobilization, so going onto crutches, for example, uh, is going to uh, speed up the rate at which we lose muscle muscle mass, so atrophy in that muscle, which just simply means we've got more to get back before we, you're fully rehabilitated. Uh, but similarly, minimising function in the short term can also result in in changes or, or lapses in the communication between the nerve and the muscle fibre. So we call it neuromuscular inhibition, which is really just a fancy word to say that the, the muscle and the nerve don't interact as well as they previously have been. So okay. maintaining function in that early state is, is really important. And, and typically we'll do that with with some form of load, even, even from day one or two. And when you say load, what do you mean? Yeah, so some form of active exercise to try and uh, result in some kind of contraction through that muscle. So for a number of reasons, but as we spoke about, uh, removing the, the fluid in that early stage is, is really important and contracting the muscle gently or, or within um, a reasonable intensity can actually help promote that fluid returning back up toward the heart. So all of the blood vessels which return the fluid back up to the heart, they're all one-way valves. So contraction of the muscle only is going to push the fluid in, in one direction. So that, that's going to be a really positive thing. Yep. But also in terms of trying to bring the new collagen that's going to form in that area to, to form a, a scar tissue within the muscle, uh, that's going to be accelerated and, and perhaps laid down in, in a better location with a small amount of um, external load. So for example, if it was a calf, we might give you something uh, ranging from just some calf pumps on the bed just to keep your leg and calf muscle nice and active, uh, all the way through to doing double or single leg calf raises in that in that early phase, just to, right. to maintain some function. And that just depends, like you said, on that continuum of where the person comes in and what degree of injury they've got. Yeah, and largely the degree of pain. So yep. we we know that some level of discomfort is is acceptable um, throughout that rehab process. But again, everyone's perception of of their injury is going to lead to different levels of pain. So. If someone comes in and they can tolerate a single leg calf raise, and that may be a, a great starting place, but you might have a, a very similar injury with someone who can barely tolerate pumping their ankle, you know, without any load on the bed. So, uh, again, it's all very specific to the yep. patient. Yeah, person to person. And so, mate, if uh, I then repeatedly strained my calf um, when I'm running, how would uh, how would you recommend I go about preventing that? So um, repeated injuries would be suggestive of, of one or two things to me. So one is that um, the injury to the calf potentially uh, is a more complex one that, that's either been been missed or, or maybe uh, one that you've developed along the way somewhere. So by that, I mean typically the, the injuries to the muscle belly or the, the fascia where it connects to the muscle belly are, rehabilitate really well. But if you get injuries to... Uh, the tendon, as we said, they can take a lot longer to, to regenerate and, and to heal. So it's not uncommon that people think they have a, a muscle belly tear. They'll wait, you know, four or six weeks and go through a really great rehabilitation program. And then they return to running or return to some level of uh, high level function. And then they their calf um, tears again on them. And, and that's a common presentation that we'll see with these um, intratendinous injuries, which are which are sometimes missed, so that would be one consideration certainly. And even after long rehab, so let's say we've identified that there may be a tendon component to the injury, might be twelve weeks. You rehab, you're, you're back to sport, you're playing really well, and then you may re-injure again, you know, in a year or two's time because the the rate of re-injury is a little bit higher with the injuries involving the muscle tendon. Second, to that you know, there's there's probably other contributing factors that are that are leading to to the injury. So in the case of the calf, it, it might be that the local muscle tissue, so your, your calf complex, just isn't strong enough to be able to withstand loads. So 
um, depending on your sport and your activity and, and what you're being exposed to, you're going to have different demands in that in that calf complex. But uh, typically, being strong enough and also having the resistance to fatigue is important. So, if you're an ultra marathon runner, it probably doesn't matter too much uh, how much you know you can lift on a calf raise machine for three repetitions, but your ability to resist fatigue over you know hours and hours of repetitive work is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing is if there are any other uh, biomechanical considerations up or down the chain, which can be increasing that load. So uh, again, if we're, we're thinking calf, and in a previous episode I, I spoke about hitting the ground with a, a, a dead fish or a wet fish as a foot. So if your foot's not in the ability to uh, doesn't have the ability to um, rigidly absorb load and transfer load through that calf. It's going to increase the amount of work through your calf. Uh, similarly, up the chain, you might have um, compensation strategies through your, your quadricep or around your hips, which might increase the amount of work that the calf has to do um, and some, whether it's biomechanical changes to your running uh, to your running technique or, or strength training around your around your hips or, or, or knees may um, may contribute to that, but that's very, very specific from patient to patient. Yep. So I guess to summarise those couple of points, you'd be looking at someone's biomechanics. Definitely, yep. And then uh, testing their muscle strength and to see if – or, or tolerance or capacity, as you've mentioned. Definitely, yep. yeah. And we can often see that people have really good – um, strength around their hips, for example. So the one that gets a lot of press are your hip abductors, so the ones that take your hip away from your body or your leg away from your body and, and the external rotators so that, that twist your leg out. People can have really, really good strength in those muscles when they're tested in isolation, but the, the motor control, their, their um, motor pattern in, in a running gait is just not there. So it may be the, a strength component or it may be a, a skill um, technique component yeah, or, or both. Or both. Okay. And does um, does a scan play any role with uh, identifying or help you to manage a calf strain? Yeah, so it can. So typically we'd look at either an ultrasound scan or an MRI. I certainly don't think that that's indicated in, in most uh, cases. We're, we're fortunate in our clinic that we have access to an ultrasound. Um, so we can sometimes uh, look at a calf or a hamstring tear under the ultrasound to get an idea of the severity of the tear, but that's not something that we'll always do. A good detailed clinical assessment can often give a, a really accurate uh, diagnosis. It would only be if, one, if uh, we were a little bit unsure about what was going on in terms of the specific structure that was injured, which which may inform the best course of rehabilitation or if there was a really strict time frame on, on your rehab. So uh, certainly in elite sport, they're, they're used a lot more readily. Yep. Um, that's probably just because they've always done that and, and it's hard to reverse some of that stigma. People think that they've got a muscle injury and they need to get a, a scan associated with that. But also it can be helpful if we know that we've got a, an intratendinous injury, for example, you know, we might be looking at eight to 10 weeks compared to a, a, a muscle belly injury, which might be four or five weeks. That'll uh, certainly change the expectations with coaches and, and also how we'll rehabilitate the athlete. Yep. But your your assessment will basically help to guide you as to whether you need that or not. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Okay. Thanks, mate. And so for our audience, Paul, um, would you be able to give them any tips on potentially improving their, their running mechanics for performance? And the reason why I'm going down that path is I know you've had some experience with the Titans, so performance is is a big component for those guys and, and I'm sure your role as their physio. Yeah, certainly. So um, I think if you're happy, we'll focus on maybe that, that lower intensity running, so mm-hmm. jogging, yep. perhaps more like what you'd see in, in recreational runners rather than the, the high-speed running mechanics. Yep. So they're, they're very different um, very different modalities. But really in terms of the 
the lower intensity, so so jogging or, or or fast fast jogging speeds, we're looking at maximizing our ability to to utilize oxygen. So that's that's the predominant factor that limits how fast we can run, you know, for extended periods. Uh, there's a couple of really really big big ones that that do that. So one, we get a lot of energy leak, or we'll commonly see what we call an energy leak around the hip, which is really inefficient movement patterns around around the hip and pelvis, which cause a huge increase in load in, in other areas of the body. So uh, if you think of someone that's running towards you, so you're looking at them front on or, or perhaps from, from behind, what you'd like to see is their stance legs off. They're standing, if they're transitioning from their left leg onto their right leg, as they get halfway through that stance on their right leg, you'd like to see if they were wearing a belt, that that belt buckle is angled up towards the free leg, if that makes sense. So yep. right leg on the ground, um, left foot, knee, hip are all flexed, and you'd like to see the belt buckle angling up towards that left hip. Yep. Uh, which means you've got really nice, strong force being produced through that stance leg on the on the muscles on the outside of the hip, uh, which helps minimise uh, both dipping through your hips, so you don't have energy lost by having to constantly flex and extend your hip. And similarly, you're going to uh, mitigate risk of excessive side to side movement. So, so the trunk bending left and right and left and right and left and right. So that's probably the most common one that will. We'll see in terms of running mechanics. It, it also that has implications, you know, further down the chain. In that, if you have that energy loss through the hips and you, you don't have the ability to get your free hip up really high, it can limit your um, ability to get your leg out in front of you to to slam your foot down to the ground to produce that force. So inevitably, what you end up with is a foot strike that's a little bit forward of your center of mass. So essentially, if you if you imagine if you're running really fast and you're trying to break, you'd put your foot in front of you to try and break. So we end up you know, to a lesser extent with that same position where your foot's leaning in front of your centre of mass and each step acts like a braking force. Uh, so we, we commonly look to address that by getting the, the tibia, so the, the bone in the in the lower leg, so your shin bone, much more vertical at impact. So in terms of calf injury, uh, we know that when you land on your heel with your foot further out in front, you're going to experience a lot more what we call tibial, tibial acceleration. So the tibia lands on a little bit of an angle, and then as you move forward from heel over onto your midfoot, over onto your forefoot, that tibia is going to slowly or, or rather quickly, um, you know, go from being declined to inclined, which mm-hmm. increases the amount of work through your calf. So that that's twofold. One, there's a lot more strain going through your calf, so there's a lot more risk of, of fatigue. But because it's working a lot harder, you are going to need more oxygen to supply that muscle. So really what we want to try and do is, is maximise the elastic energy of that that calf by landing on the midfoot, having a much more vertical tibia and reducing the the, um, the breaking force of that foot landing in front of you. Yep. So you've talked about oxygen a couple of times. Does that mean I just have to breathe more or? <laughs> I wish it was that simple. So uh, if, for a given amount of oxygen that we've taken in, so you take a nice deep breath, you get a certain amount of oxygen, that oxygen will be distributed by your heart through to all your working muscles. So um, we've probably all experienced this where you're doing an exercise in your arm or your legs, you know, you're, you're digging a hole and your, your legs start to get fatigued. As your legs are working really hard, they, they demand a huge supply of oxygen because that's largely how muscles will work by oxygen fueling them. So the harder the muscles are working, then the more oxygen they need. So the more oxygen we need to be able to take in or to produce or to recycle to ultimately um, have an output. Okay. It's always very interesting speaking with you. Um, and and finally, mate, do you have any tips uh, that you'd give to our audience to help prevent um, muscle injuries when running? Like maybe if you could choose three hot tips that you'd use. 
came out with, with with my big three last time. And I got to I two know. and then fours. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So so number one, it, it all is going to come down to your load. So if you haven't run before, you haven't run for a long period of time, and trying to go for a ten kilometer run, you might be able to get through it once or twice, but uh, inevitably you'd expect that it'd catch up with you, whether that results in just a huge amount of muscle soreness or a muscle injury or, or a joint injury. You know, certainly being progressive in, in how we increase our load is is probably the number one thing that we can do. Second to that, I think, as I alluded to before, um, muscle strength and, and capacity is, is is really crucial. So I read a study the other day, the, the author alludes me, but it, it essentially showed that if you do 10, 10 sets of 10 repetitions I think it was knee extension. So you could replicate the amount of collagen that you're producing um, in the surrounding muscles that over the course of four weeks was the equivalent each session of running 40 kilometres. Wow. So just by doing these repeated exercises in the gym, you know, at quite heavy intensity, so that was 65% of the the maximum um, weight that they could they could lift one time. So doing these repeated high-intensity exercises in the gym can really prepare your muscles for high running loads without even being on the road. So that, okay. that's important. So if you're thinking, uh, you know, there's be a lot of guys at the moment who are in the off-season for footy or off-season for, you know, netball or whatever sports that they play and they are going to go back into high amount of running without much um, work under their belt. So I'd certainly encourage you to get into the gym and, and again, especially the, those lower intensity running speeds, we're, we're talking about your quads and and your calves and, and really trying to get some, some strength into those before you start. Yep. Okay. And did you have uh, any more tips? You've got me, you've got me at two again. <laughs> uh, so, so third certainly is if, if you're really serious about um, improving your running or, or reducing your injury rate, I think it can be really, really effective to get a biomechanical assessment from someone who knows what they're doing. So typically that would probably involve a good detailed assessment uh, as you'd have with a standard physiotherapy session. But um, you know, looking at some more detail around the, the muscle strengths and, and certainly the, the mechanics on the treadmill because uh, we do know that from both a performance and, and an injury risk point of view, they, they can be, um, yeah, they can be really important. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so I'll be booking in with you on Saturday because <laughs> I want to take my um, power walking to running and we'll be looking at my load management, my strength that I do in the gym, and then also... Um, and a biomechanical assessment. Perfect. <laughs> Excellent. Mate, thank you so much for coming in um, to discuss uh, running and, and the injuries surrounding it. And I'm sure everyone will take a, quite a bit of value out of today's discussion. Right. Thank you. So, guys, be sure to leave us a, a rating and review if you like the show.